KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. Respiratory illnesses spread as COVID cases are expected to rise. This triple-demic of flu, RSV, COVID, I mean, we've had enough of COVID, no less the other two viruses. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Voters are being asked to enshrine reproductive rights in the state constitution. I certainly have not seen any polling that indicates that this is anything but a slam dunk, given how strong support is for abortion rights in California. A breakdown of sports betting and how props 26 and 27 fit in, plus an excerpt of Boondocks. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Last week, Governor Gavin Newsom announced California's COVID-19 state of emergency would end in February. Now, as the nation enters its flu season with highly contagious COVID variants and widespread RSV, there are concerns we may be lowering our guard too soon. Joining me with more on all things COVID-19 is our frequent guest, Dr. Eric Topol, Director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, welcome back. Thanks so much, Jade. So what are your thoughts on the planned end to the state's COVID emergency? Well, I wish it would be true, but we don't know. I mean, we're going to go through another wave in the weeks ahead. And so it's hard to forecast how long that's going to last, how bad it's going to be, and whether there'll be further waves. So I think it's optimistic to think that we'll be out of the woods by then. But let's see. Let's see where it takes us. Right now, things are looking quite good. And so you get the illusion that we're just going to get better. But we're already seeing signs in New York and elsewhere that COVID is starting to invert in terms of getting a little bit worse, and it's likely to continue. And as you mentioned at the top, we also have a couple other viruses to reckon with. Yesterday, President Biden received his booster dose of the COVID vaccine. You previously said you'd wait before receiving an Omicron-specific booster. What are your thoughts now? Well, there's a lot going on with that. First, it's good that president is having his booster. And we know that boosters in general help particularly people over age 50 prevent deaths and hospitalization. And we have data from the CDC that shows even 18 to 49 years of age, boosters reduce hospitalization during the BA5 wave, which was the wave that we're just getting over now. I had my uh, bivalent booster weeks ago, and we also have new data from the whole lab in Columbia, which shows that the BA5 booster really isn't that different from the original booster. That is, it augments our immunity, it gets up, revs up the neutralizing antibodies and our T cells to take on new variants like the ones that we're going to be facing in the weeks ahead. But it isn't as special as some people had thought it might be in terms of being really strong against BA5 because the original booster 
has very similar properties. So yeah, I've had it. I've had the typical response that I get from each of these shots after the first one, which was chills, fever, headaches, feeling really profoundly tired for a day, day and a half. But would I rather have that than to get COVID and the possibility of long COVID? Absolutely. So I know a lot of people who get the boosters, they don't have a problem at all. I'm just one of those reactors, which I'm sure many of the listeners can identify with. It's specific to BA5, but what if these other variants become the dominant strain? Is it effective against those strains? Yes. The one we're talking about that's going to drive this next wave, it's called, I wish there were better names, and it's BQ1.1. Now, there's a very similar immune escape variant. Singapore just went through the first wave in the world, and they have a very high booster rate, over double what we have here in the US. And they withstood that challenge very well, likely because of the vaccines. They did not have much of a bump in hospital admissions or ICUs or deaths. There was some but not nearly what it might have been without the vaccine. So that's a really good proxy telling us that vaccines will protect against even the more immune escape variants. Also, you know, are are the rapid antigen tests still highly effective given that we've got these newer variants? Yes, they really help and they should be used in people if you have COVID to help guide when they can get back because uh, it's typically at least seven, eight days. And to go at five, like the CDC um, guideline is, is just asking for trouble. So the rapid tests are helpful for diagnosis and also for guidance about isolation length. You've also spoken about the need for additional COVID remedies, such as nasal sprays and antiviral medications. Where do we currently stand in that field? Well, we really need to push on the nasal vaccine path. We've seen success in a vaccine in India. It was actually built in the U.S. at Washington University in St. Louis and also in China. But we do not have vaccines uh, in late trials here in the United States. We do have a company that has outlicensed the India vaccine, and uh, we have little support from FDA or this government right now to push on nasal vaccines. Best way to stop infections and transmission. You know, the big bet in this country has been made on shots, and there's never been the priority for the nasal vaccines. Some of our best academic labs like I mentioned, WashU, there's also Mount Sinai that is developing in Mexico, and there's little enthusiasm and resources that have been put into it. Meanwhile, our government purchased 171 million booster shots, which is $30 billion plus dollars at cost. A lot of those funds for these boosters aren't going to get used. That's clear. They should, but they won't. A lot of those funds could be put towards accelerating the nasal vaccine programs that are underway, but at much earlier stages than overseas. With the flu season underway, health officials are having to contend with a triple threat of COVID, RSV, and of course, flu cases. What are your predictions for the next few months? Wear a mask. Wear a KN95 or N95. That's going to give you protection against these viruses. When you're indoors, when you're in groups, when you're going you know, into places that you have no idea what the status are of the people with respect to their potential infections or ability to spread. But the real problem with RSV is, of course, this, the children. And uh, we're already seeing places in the United States, hospitals outside of our region that are getting uh, under strain because of 
RSV in children, um, get, you know, getting quite ill. And also the same group that's susceptible to flu and COVID, the older folks, particularly immunocompromised within them, they are potentially um, a hazard for flu and RSV as well. So, you know, just gearing up with the respiratory, these are respiratory viruses. We know how to protect against them. We just have to use the tools we have. Rady Children's Hospital is seeing a surge of the respiratory illness, RSV, like what's being reported nationwide. With all of these different viruses circulating, how does that affect the health risk for kids? Right. Well, uh, of course, in some places that are in colder climates where more people are indoors without ventilation, the RSV problem is even worse than here at San Diego and Rady. Uh, but yeah, this triple-demic of, of flu, RSV, COVID, I mean, we've had enough of COVID, no less the other uh, two viruses. But we do know how to work against this. And that's why it's important for the kids as well as older adults to take all the precautions that they can. And, you know, if some if a, if a child is not well, it's not a good thing for that child to be in school and potentially spreading, whether it's, you know, RSV or or any other virus. So we have to be really attentive to uh, whether it's uh, child care centers or schools, uh, because uh, kids can certainly be a vector uh, for respiratory infections, and we don't want that to happen. What does this do to their immune system? Say a child gets COVID, then the flu, then RSV, uh, you know, is it is it tough to to rebound from those illnesses? Yeah, well, it's a complex interplay, uh, Jay, because on the one hand, an infection does rev up your immunity. But on the other, you know, if you're hit hard with any one of these viruses, uh, that's a counterforce. So yeah, the only specific immunity you gain from an infection, that particular virus, it doesn't necessarily going to protect you from other viruses, of course. So uh, the best thing is to avoid these, especially in the high-risk groups. For RSV, it's the young children. And uh, for COVID and influenza, it's particularly uh, people who are seniors uh, in the older older age groups. And finally, there's been a lot of talk uh, about how newer variants pose a particular threat to people with compromised immune systems. What's the best guidance you can give for people facing these health challenges? This is a big issue because the new variants, this BQ1.1, um, basically negates the power of Evusheld, which is the intramuscular injection of two antibodies that is very helpful for the immunocompromised. So we're going to lose that edge. And that's why it's all the more important for people who are immunocompromised to keep up with their boosters and um, and try to stay ahead and get their immune system as revved up as much as possible against COVID. But the problem is, uh, Jay, the virus keeps evolving. It's under pressure from our vaccines, from our uh, boosters and our infections. And the virus is evolving rapidly. And we don't have the replacement therapies, whether it's for Evusheld, other monoclonal antibodies. If we do meet up with resistance against Paxlovid, we don't have a backup pill right now. So everything we can do to prevent getting infection or reinfection, prevent getting long COVID, and prevent serious or severe illness. And so we we can do this with what we have today, uh, but it really requires diligent attention to uh, the tools, including boosters especially, but also high-quality masks. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol.
director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, thanks as always for talking with us today. Thanks, Jade. Always good to talk with you. And I think it's good that we're in a lull right now, but let's not uh, lull ourselves to complacency. California voters are being asked to enshrine reproductive rights into the state constitution in the upcoming election. Proposition 1 would amend the California Constitution to say the state shall not deny or interfere with an individual's right to have an abortion or choose or refuse contraceptives. Although these rights are already protected by state law, supporters say having them in the state constitution gives California more leverage against any further federal moves against abortion rights. Opponents say the proposition is unnecessary and may interfere with restrictions on later term abortions. Joining me is Jeremy White, reporter for Politico's California Playbook. And Jeremy, welcome. Great to be here. Is this proposition the direct result of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade? Absolutely. And even before we learned that the Supreme Court was indeed going to overturn that precedent, you saw lawmakers in the state legislature and Governor Gavin Newsom preparing for the likelihood. This was something that folks saw coming, especially when Amy Coney Barrett was uh, confirmed to the Supreme Court. So this is one part of a multi-pronged strategy California has employed to respond to that. Uh, Other pieces, including laws limiting the enforcement of other states' laws, uh, more money to pay for reproductive procedures here in California. So supporters say this proposition represents more than just a statement of California's support for abortion rights. What practical purpose could it serve? So as you noted earlier on, California, of course, has uh, very strong abortion protections already in law. As I noted, they passed even more this year. But the fear among supporters and uh, similarly the rationale for this initiative is we've just seen the U.S. Supreme Court overturn what was thought to be settled law. And so uh, folks just want to ensure that, say, if Congress were to pass a law restricting abortion, what have you, that California's autonomy to pass its own abortion restrictions would be enshrined in the Constitution, which is the highest and most difficult to dislodge level of legal protection. But actually, would the state constitutional amendment hold up against a federal law banning abortion? That is what supporters of this believe. I am not a constitutional scholar, so I don't want to guarantee anything, but the folks who support this would make that argument, yes. So since reproductive rights are guaranteed already as part of state law, what arguments could opponents have against Prop 1? Opponents have argued essentially that this goes too far by uh, overriding any sort of restrictions on at what point a woman can obtain an abortion. I'm not so sure that's the case. There are various other laws restricting that, and I think that's something that uh, would perhaps end up being sorted out in the courts. But uh, that that is essentially the argument that proponents make, which is that this is either unnecessary and therefore sort of a stunt or that it goes further than what's already in the law. And supporters are very adamant in saying that the amendment would do nothing to change abortion restrictions, aren't they? That's correct. Uh, They would say we already have various laws on the book 
delineating when women can get abortions and that type of thing, and that this constitutional amendment would just ensure that fundamentally they can. The fact that many Republican candidates in California do not support Prop 1 is being used against them by their opponents. Is that turning out to be an effective campaign strategy? I think we're going to have to wait and see until the votes come in. There is certainly evidence, if you look at the polling, that Democratic voters are more motivated to vote based on abortion than are their Republican counterparts. At the same time, you see evidence that Republicans are more Uh, enthusiastic to vote in general in these midterms, and evidence that economic issues, things like the cost of living and the price of gas, may be top of mind for voters. And so it, of course, depends on the district. Some of the contested seats we're seeing this year include wealthier coastal Orange County districts and then uh, larger, less affluent Central Valley districts. And so the way this issue plays is, of course, going to depend on the seat and the candidates. I think it's certainly safe to say that Democrats are running on this issue. Whether that can be determinative, we're going to find out in a couple of weeks. And Governor Newsom just started releasing ads for his election cycle. And instead of promoting his own candidacy, he's urging people vote for Proposition 1. What seems to be behind that decision? Well, the governor's re-election is a certainty. I don't think there's any doubt he is about to win a second term. And that means that he has 20 plus million dollars that he can kind of use for what he wants. And so I think part of this is that the governor genuinely believes in women's reproductive freedom. And I think if you're looking at it from a political perspective, to your earlier question, I think to the extent the governor is able to encourage more people to vote for Proposition 1, that could potentially turn out more Democrats in general, which could ripple across other races in California. Does the governor believe support or does it seem like support for Proposition 1 is softening? I have not seen him indicate that. I I certainly have not seen any polling that indicates that this is anything but a slam dunk, given how strong support is for abortion rights in California and given the level of urgency that has been created around this issue in the light of the Supreme Court striking down Roe v. Wade. To go back to something that you alluded to earlier, when the ruling striking down Roe v. Wade first came out, there seemed to be this outpouring of outrage among supporters of reproductive rights and the idea that this was going to uh, result in a huge turnout in November. Do we have any indication yet on, on that fact? Is this issue going to promote a high voter turnout in California? You know, as I said, it is certainly something that is more of a motivation for Democrats than for Republicans. Is that in and of itself going to be enough to generate a a big bump in turnout, I think is one of the big questions in this election. A lot of these races are going to be close. But again, I think in some cases, it's really going to be the balance of uh, abortion as an issue that is motivating voters versus a sort of middling economy and inflation. And so it's, it's a complex sort of stew of ingredients in terms of what is going to motivate voters here. I've been speaking with Jeremy White, reporter for Politico's California Playbook. And Jeremy, thank you so much. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by 
the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Voters are seeing two sports betting propositions this election cycle. KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman tells us about the differences between Prop 26 and Prop 27. Another special interest ballot proposition. Hundreds of millions are being spent on Propositions 26 and 27. It's almost hard to miss all of their online and TV ads. Only one proposition supports California tribes like ours. Vote no on Prop 27. Yes on Prop 27. Both would amend the state constitution to allow for sports wagering in California, Proposition 26 would introduce dice games like roulette and in-person sports wagering at tribal casinos. It would also allow sports betting at four racetracks in California, including in Del Mar. Kathy Fairbanks is the spokesperson for the Yes on 26, No on 27 campaign. People betting will have to show their IDs, someone will check their IDs and make sure that they're adults and that they're following the law and they're gambling legally. Fairbanks represents a coalition of business groups and more than 50 tribes. Locally, the Barona Band of Mission Indians and the Saquon Band of the Kumeyaay Nation have contributed to the campaign. Tribes would need to work with the state to determine government payouts, and racetracks would be required to pay 10% of daily bets minus winnings. The independent nonpartisan legislative analyst says that Proposition 26 will result in tens of millions of dollars going to California coffers to fund state priorities like education, transportation, even homelessness efforts. The other proposition, 27, would legalize online sports betting for tribes and online gambling companies. Businesses would have to partner with a tribe to get a license. It's backed by betting companies like FanDuel, BetMGM, and DraftKings, along with a few smaller tribes. Nathan Click is the spokesperson for Prop 27. 25 other states have legalized online sports betting. They're proving that you can do so safely and responsibly and create real revenue for states. Under Prop 27, a tenth of betting profits would go to address homelessness, with a smaller portion of that split among tribes without casinos. The state's independent auditor uh, takes a look at every initiative that crosses its path. They found that only Prop 27 would raise hundreds of millions of dollars each year that would go directly towards homelessness and mental health support. Prop 27 is supported locally by the CEO of San Diego's Regional Task Force on Homelessness. I'm supportive of whatever it takes to get dedicated, committed funding on a permanent basis. Tamara Kohler says it's an opportunity to finally secure a permanent funding source. This funding is also not just for supporting you know, the the housing solutions, but also mental health, behavioral health, uh, treatment supports, and uh, above all, housing. If Prop 26 passes, it would mean a sports book could open at the Del Mar Thoroughbred Club. President and Chief Operating Officer Josh Rubenstein says his organization is supporting the measure. He thinks a sports book would help support the racing business and increase tax revenue. In terms of foot traffic, um, for these local businesses, you would think for busy events like uh, Super Bowl and the Final Four, that that would translate to additional business for uh, for North San Diego County. 
The public has been hammered with ads from both propositions, yet a UC Berkeley LA Times poll from earlier this month found the measures polling under 50%. Both need a simple majority to pass. Our priority, the tribe's priority from day one since 27 showed up, was to defeat that measure. So we are looking at the poll results in a positive light because our number one priority is being met. Click with the Proposition 27 campaign says they're undaunted. The voters I talk to, they understand completely, you know, we need a solution to homelessness. Uh, They support online sports betting, uh, and it's a win-win for the state of California. For more information, check out the KPBS Voter Hub online. That report was from KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman, who joins me now. And Matt, welcome. Great to be here, Maureen. Estimates are that more than $400 million has been spent in advertising for Props 26 and 27, and that makes these propositions among the most expensive in U.S. history. Why has so much money been poured into these campaigns? Yeah, and we're talking nearly $600 million in total raised for both of these measures, whether it's supporting it or opposing them. Uh, and bottom line, short answer, there's a lot of money on the table, Maureen. I mean, you know, we know California is one of the largest economies in the world. Uh, there's a lot of people here who they estimate, you know, want to do sports betting. I mean, if we're talking at least just with Prop 27, if we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars per year, just based on that 10% tax, then we're talking billions and billions of dollars that that this uh, online gambling and in-person gambling market uh, is here in California. Kathy Fairbanks, who's in your report, she's with Prop 26, says their main goal was not to get their proposition to win, but to get Proposition 27 defeated. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So Fairbanks, you know, she very much frames this as, you know, she's representing more than 50 tribes, uh, m- uh, more of the larger ones in California. And they they really frame this as a tribes versus these big out-of-state gambling companies like DraftKings, BetMGM, FanDuel. Um, so, you know, when this was coming out, you know, when, when they were hearing that there was collecting signatures, they wanted to defeat this measure so that, you know, the big tribes could hold on to their, you know, uh, reign over gambling in the state of California. So, um, while obviously they want Prop 26 to pass, uh, as you heard in that story, they are very happy uh, just seeing uh, Prop 27 go down. Prop 26 supporters have largely run negative ads against Prop 27. And one of the main themes is that underage kids might get seduced by online betting. Is there any evidence to support that? You know, it, it kind of seems like one of those, uh, you know, like a parent has a phone and a kid gets it and they order a bunch of stuff on Amazon. That, that seems to be sort of the fear here is that kids will have access to this. Um, now, we are hearing from the Proposition 27 folks that, you know, if this were, were to pass, that this would go to the California Office of Attorney General, and they would be tasked with creating a safe online betting marketplace. Um, so they don't foresee these issues happening. Um, but yeah, you know, you're going to have to like submit a photo of your ID and all sorts of things like that. Um, so there is some worries about kid access, but, you know, backers of Prop 27, they don't seem that worried about it. Supporters of Prop 27 have said that a portion of the revenue from online sports betting would go to support homeless and mental health programs. But who would oversee that process? Yeah, and I think it's first worth noting, too, that, you know, in the revenue we're talking about, you know, potentially hundreds of millions of dollars for 27, uh, you know, the low tens of millions of dollars for Proposition 26. 
We're talking 10% of the profits on those bets. Those are going to be the revenue that the state gets after all these wins are being paid out. Um, but specifically for Prop 27, um, it would create this new fund. It's called the California Online Sports Betting Trust Fund. And of that money, you know, 85% would go to homelessness and 15% would go to smaller tribes, tribes that do not offer uh, uh, gambling. Many of the ads for Prop 27 suggest that it's supported by most Indian tribes in the state. Is that true? No, it's not supported by most Indian tribes. Uh, there's at least three smaller tribes up in Northern California that are backing Prop 27. Uh, but here in San Diego County, you know, uh, there's no tribes here that are officially uh, backing Prop 27. Uh, the ones that uh, have set, said where they are are supporting Proposition 26. Uh, we're even seeing some local tribes here in San Diego County uh, putting you know millions of dollars uh, behind uh, Proposition 26 and to defeat Prop 27. So it's a very big issue for them. But you know I think it, it is false to say that most Indian tribes are supporting Proposition 27. Uh, a lot more are supporting Proposition 26. You mentioned the polling that came out showing both propositions failing to get the required 50% of the vote. And a major funder of Prop 27 seems to be anticipating defeat. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, you know, so we heard from the CEO of FanDuel earlier this month saying that, you know, we're, we're going to absolutely live to fight another day. And he's, he's saying, you know, we believe that there's a path to get there, whether that's, you know, this year or whether that's in 2024. So almost kind of conceding defeat there. I don't know if that's looking at some of the polling numbers. Um, but I think this harkens back to what I talked about earlier, um, about $600 million raised on both sides between these propositions. Um, that's a drop in the bucket of the billions of dollars that these companies could be getting. So whether these companies spend $400 million, $500 million, you know, uh, just this year trying to get this done, they're looking at this long term uh, and, and they, they see a big market here. So, yeah, while voters, you know, if this doesn't pass in November, I would not be surprised if the next election cycle, we don't see something similar coming back up again. And then if we do see that, uh, seeing something again, maybe coming from like these tribal casinos like we saw in Prop 26. To what you're saying about perhaps anticipating defeat, the out-of-state online sports betting companies backing Prop 27 also stopped ad spending in California earlier this month. So is the writing really on the wall for perhaps both of these initiatives? You know, we're still seeing a lot of advertising. I just walked into the gas station the other day and I heard on the radio an ad for Proposition 27. Uh, so the companies are definitely still spending money here. I don't think you're going to see them, you know, come out and say, hey, this is not going to happen. You know, they're in it and all the way through November here to try to get this to pass. There, there's just too much money on the table here for these companies. But it's going to be really interesting, Maureen, to see, you know, the most expensive propositions in state history. And it looks like they're both not going to pass. I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, thank you. Thanks, Maureen. As we just heard, hundreds of millions of dollars are being poured into political advertisements in California ahead of the November election. The resulting political ads are flooding the airwaves with perspectives on everything from sports betting to immigration. But who's responsible for making sure the content of those ads is factual? Nikki Usher is an associate professor in communication studies at the University of San Diego. They say, quote, information disorder and political polarization make it harder than ever to discern facts from baseless claims or misinformation. 
And Professor Nikki Usher joins me now with more. Welcome to you. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with that idea that you wrote in your op-ed for the Los Angeles Times this week. How is information disorder, that is the intentional sharing of false or misleading information and political polarization, affecting our ability to discern fact from fiction in political ads? Well, right now, there's just such an onslaught of all sorts of information, some of it perfectly factual and some of it deliberately designed to persuade you to take an action. After all, that is exactly why political advertising exists. It's asking you to change an attitude and take an action. And so when it comes down to election day, we're seeing all sorts of efforts by campaigns to try to get us to go their way in the voting box. And it's confusing because we've got national news, local news, regional news, news from our friends, memes, social media, YouTube. And all of that is a swirling mix that makes it hard to really understand. Um, There's often this do your own research sort of thing, rely on factual information. But that's really hard for an ordinary person who doesn't have a ton of time. You point to a particular ad that aired during the Padres-Dodgers playoffs from a group calling itself Citizens for Sanity. Uh, We're not going to play the ad here, but can you describe it to us and what it's supporting? Oh, wow. It is one of the most racist, devastating anti-immigration ads I've seen since the Trump caravan ad of 2016, um, which actually had misleading uh, photos and information um, to illustrate the ad. But that's besides the point. It's the same people behind it. Uh, Stephen Miller um, of the Trump administration is behind the Citizens for Sanity. And Citizens for Sanity sounds like pretty innocuous, right? Like, yay, sanity. We all want sanity. And yet it is a focus on the most brutal crimes that have in any way been associated with somebody who is not a citizen, um, really raising that sense of moral panic and fear. And the old law and order vote Republican is more implicit than explicit. You point out that viewers might believe that their local network has fact-checked the ads they air, but that's not the case. Uh, What regulation exists for ensuring that political ads are factually accurate and not misleading? So here's the thing. Political activity and political speech has some of the most heightened protections for free speech. And so these political ads aren't fact-checked. In fact, That's sort of the whole point. They're designed to persuade you um, to make a political decision you might not otherwise make. And so I think part of the problem is is that these networks take in quite a windfall from political advertising every two years. And it's part of what helps make all of the local news possible on television. But I think that there's kind of this implicit sense that if it's running on a trusted station that I rely on for my local news, that maybe that this is actually okay. Maybe it's right. Somebody's had to have signed off on it. And so I guess it can't be as bad as something that people are sharing on the internet. So um, I think that it gives these ads end up getting a veneer of credibility because the messenger is a network that uh, or a station that people trust. And I think that that's kind of where it gets really complicated. 
Uh, how do news deserts sort of exacerbate uh, the issue of information disorder? So there are two really important things. The first is that people really do trust their local news. Even though they don't trust lots of news, they tend to trust their local news more than anything else. And the second thing that we know is actually local news can actually help mitigate political polarization. So when people don't have a good understanding of what's going on at home, they tend to take their cues either from national political parties or national news media. And those folks are often really divorced from the conditions on the ground that people are actually living in. And so it makes it hard to make good decisions about what's affecting you directly in your own backyard. You say that while election laws are hard to change, there may be ways for the Federal Trade Commission to step in to ensure that the information in political ads is truthful. Talk a little bit about that. So we have a really exciting group of people who are leading the FTC right now uh, that are really aware about the challenges to information disorder, security, privacy, all of this sort of stuff. Um, But uh, anybody watching the news is a consumer. Um, Anybody watching baseball is a consumer. So technically, this is about elections, which wouldn't be under the purview of the Federal Trade Commission. But when you start to think about protecting American consumers, that's immediately under the FTC. And so in my best imagined world, there would be some form of disclosure that was would happen before the ad that this ad is not provided uh, or checked by the station that is hosting it, some sort of, you know, warning almost to the consumer. The FTC has come down against false advertising for decades. um, And at this point, we need to think about what that might mean for political advertising. I've been speaking with Nikki Usher, an associate professor of communication studies at the University of San Diego. Professor Usher, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. October is Filipino American History Month, and San Diego is home to one of the largest Filipino communities in the state of California. Yet despite the significant population, meaningful representation of Filipino culture and identity is often missing in art, media, and other creative sectors. Earlier this year, however, a new KPBS docu-series broadened that representation by exploring the question of Asian American identity through the lens of San Diego's vibrant Filipino community. Out of the Boondocks features Filipino artists and creatives who discuss how the importance of their work ties into their strong cultural identities. Midday Edition producer Harrison Patino spoke with show hosts Rio Villa and J.J. Manikis. Villa begins by discussing how they came up with the title for the program. The root of the word boondocks actually comes from um, a Tagalog word for mountain. And we know that that's only one dialect that comes from the Philippines, but it's one of the main ones. So that's why it, it has 
basically been translated into English, but the two words have a totally different meaning, right? So the Tagalog word is bundok, which means mountain. And boondocks, it's kind of a negative word in a way. If you're from the boondocks, you're kind of seen as an outsider. So taking the duality from those two words, we came up with the title so that we're basically saying, you know, Filipinos, like you had said, are one of the largest Asian groups in America. And we're the largest Asian group in San Diego and in California. Our presence is strong. We are here and present and are adding to the cultural um, layout of San Diego. But like you said, our representation doesn't really match that. So the word bundok means something strong and unified and boondocks means something far and unknown. And that kind of represents the Filipino American experience of those of us in San Diego. JJ, how do you think this show explores the duality that Rio's talking about there? For many years, we haven't been able to tell these stories and had the platform. And with the word bundok, boondocks, it's like coming from a faraway place. And a lot of our heritage and our culture comes from an island which is so far away from here. And many of us Filipino Americans like me and Rio, we grew up here in San Diego trying to find a connection to our heritage. And it's really important for us to show that the culture behind the Filipino American experience. So I think it's really important to highlight that. And can you talk a little bit about the show itself and some of the people you'll be talking to? Some of the people that are going to be featured on the show are ground floor murals. I'm sure so many people listening to this have seen their murals around town. They're just eye-catching and so lifelike, mostly of sports icons and animals and things that represent San Diego. And another is the Kuya. He's a tribal tattoo artist and he's helping revive Filipino tribal tattoo. Oftentimes when people think of tribal tattoos, they think of maybe like Polynesian tattooing, but the Philippines also has its own tribal tattoo traditions. And so he's one of those people who are helping those living in San Diego who might not feel that connected to their Filipino roots connect back to that history. Another person that came to mind is someone that Rio interviewed, and that was uh, Jess Mercado. And she practices Escrima, which is Filipino martial arts. And um, her talking about her journey through Filipino martial arts and connecting with the culture and her roots. We also interview my cousin. She is a theater casting director for the Old Globe. And she talks about her role as a casting director and um, how she came from the Philippines, lived in Indonesia, and how she was trying to identify with with her Filipino-American identity. Now, as we're talking about here, you'll both be speaking with people from a pretty diverse group of different creative backgrounds and interests. What made you want to share and highlight these kinds of perspectives? I think each of the creatives that we've interviewed this season, they're all so different and also unique. And they just really exude the spirit of the Filipino and of somebody here that's a creative that happens to be San Diegan. And guys like Willie Santos, who is a professional skateboarder, and he's Tony Hawk's best friend. And he's a person that's known within the San Diego community, not just through uh, Filipino Americans, but everybody. He's he's a pretty famous uh, skateboarder and skateboarding here in San Diego is a huge thing. So we just wanted to have a nice variety of creatives. And this is who we ended up with. So we're excited to sh tell their story. And Rio, what about you? What really inspired you to want to talk to the people that you're talking to and highlight their different backgrounds? We are calling everyone creatives that are 
that are part of this show because they all did something that was innovative, that was different than what is often expected of us, which has tended to be, especially from San Diego, being a large military town to join the military and to go into the health field. And these can be stereotypes of the careers that we tend to go into. And so we just wanted to show that there are tons of different routes that we have taken to get to where we are in order to improve representation, to document our stories. And all these people are doing it in so many different ways. Another person we interview is my dad, and he just retired from being in the education system for 36 years. And his art form is um, helping students go to college, students who are often first generation. So everyone is helping the community in so many different ways. And that itself is, is creative. Well, Rio, you touched on it a little bit there, but I want to ask you, do you think the Filipino experience is something that's underrepresented here in San Diego? I, I do. And that's exactly why we decided to create this series. We wanted to just show that we are in all of these different places, that we are in this tattoo shop, The Good Life in downtown. We are in um, a health center that provides traditional massage by Dr. Kat. She's another interview of ours. That we are in the film industry in San Diego. And you'll see that with Emma Francisco and Benito Bautista of the San Diego Filipino Cinema. We're present in so many of these different places. And even within our own community, we often don't know about these people. So we're trying to show people who who are non-Filipinos about where we are and what we're doing here and also the Filipino community that might not be aware. And JJ, to that point, what do you wish more San Diegans knew about Filipino culture and the Filipino experience in general? I'd like to have us break the stereotypes of just like general people that don't know about the culture to know more about just the lumpia and the pancit at parties and, and you know, those types of things. Filipinos are around and they have talents in all spectrums, you know, from being muralists and skateboarders. And they're not just, you know, some of these people could be nurses or doctors, but at the same time, they also have a side passion. And we just want to show those more well-rounded types of stories. And do you agree with that, Rio, this idea of breaking these stereotypes by talking with these artists and creatives? Yes, I love what Jay said. I'm literally over here giving thumbs up <laughs> to what he was saying, because that's exactly what we want people to get from this. And to also, in the process, learn more about our history, that we we throw in some historical facts as well. And for people to, to learn about our history, about our culture, and our creative outlets. That was Midday Edition producer Harrison Patino talking with the hosts of Out of the Boondocks, Rio Villa and J.J. Manikis. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com.